Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and my guest today is John Wang. John is a keynote speaker. He's an author with Penguin Random House, and he's got a book coming out at some point called Big Asian Energy, which synthesizes his purpose, his mission, which is to empower Asian Americans to break through the bamboo ceiling and to own their brilliance. And we dive into everything on this one. Well, not everything. It would be weird. But we talked about a whole bunch of stuff not necessarily related specifically just to those seeking big Asian energy. We talked about the difference between confidence and arrogance, the difference between speaking up versus demanding. We talked about what quiet overachievers are and the cultural things in place that can keep us from shining our light bright. In Australia, I know they refer to it as tall poppy syndrome. So this mix between being humble and not owning your gifts, not being authoritative, not feeling confident enough to speak up or to stand out. It was a good conversation. We bounce all over the place talking about a bunch of really interesting topics. John is a man that has been in my orbit for a long time. We have many mutual friends and acquaintances. I randomly met his partner a couple months ago at a river. And so it was cool to finally connect with him and to dive into his work and his beliefs. Uh, he's a great dude. We have a lot of fun. We laugh quite a bit, including within the first 60 seconds of recording. And then as we were starting to wind down the conversation and tidy up the interview, we jumped back in to another uh, hearty discourse. So anyway, uh, John is blowing up on TikTok. He is growing an Instagram account. He's got the book. He's got the website. He's doing lots of stuff on LinkedIn. So I've included links to those in the show notes. You can get into his space. But without further ado, here is John Wang. All right. John Wang. It sounds like John Wayne, actually, now that I say it. Uh, John Wang. Welcome I to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, when I that was my that was my nickname. I was really proud of it when I was uh in school. Uh my nickname was the Duke because this sounded like John Wayne and John Wayne the Cowboy, and yeah. his name was the Duke. I was super proud of it until I realized that nobody ever got who John Wayne was. So thank you for bringing that back. <laughs> just you know, just bring up some old trauma in the first 36 seconds, you know? Like... Yeah, we could dive into that one too. Lots, lots of dick joke names, man. Uh I always joke that I I think my parents missed an opportunity to name me Johnson Wang instead of John Wang, because then I would have the best porn name ever. <laughs> is that okay? Can we start with that? <laughs> Bro, we're a minute in. We're off the this rails. Is now, this, this is, is now where we're at. Okay. This, All right. This is great. But I mean, maybe the John Wayne thing is somewhere to dive into your work and your purpose, because for those that are yeah. just listening and not watching on YouTube, your background is uh, bright red and it says big Asian energy 10 times all around you. You're immersed in that. And then as a child, your nickname was this prototypical American Western man. Uh, and I know that a lot of your work focuses on finding identity, sense of self, purpose, et cetera. Totally. So for those listening that have no idea who you are, other than uh, Johnson Wang would be your porn name. <laughs> <laughs> who are you uh, i'm an only fans model no uh that was a, that's a joke that's a joke <laughs> yeah but like so maybe you can introduce yourself what you what you're about what you're passionate about who you are yeah absolutely uh so i am a um uh, you could say i'm a an educator and a coach and right now my main project is working with asian north americans and it's been that for the last 15 years, you know, I've ran a school called Mastery Academy, and uh, that one was working with students on getting into top schools, and most of them were Asian, North American. And then I started doing executive and personal coaching, like high performance coaching, and mostly with, I would say, you know, employees from companies like Google, Meta, Facebook, um, 
you know, Goldman Sachs, and once again, lots of Asian Americans. And right now I'm writing a book and I've got a podcast and a show called We Talk All About Personal Development for Asian Americans. Your show and podcast is called Big Asian Energy. For some reason, it blipped out for me, but maybe for everybody else, it did not. But Big Asian Energy, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So maybe we can just start there because when we were talking before the podcast started, you were saying, hey, man, it's not just an Asian thing. These are general principles that apply to everybody. Uh, So maybe you can dive into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So why Asians was was always a question that I got. And the the real answer is just because this is my own background identity. And I feel like no one is specifically talking about it from an Asian lens. But the truth is, most of what I talk about, uh, things like overcoming imposter syndrome, things like understanding, you know, why we go into caretaking patterns, you know, why we, we, we feel this need to work ourselves down to the bone and burn out, but yet we are still feeling under-recognized, under-appreciated for our work is a universal concept. And this is really the, the core of Big Asian Energy is I started doing research and I started working with all these clients and I started recognizing there are these seven core, uh, we even call them archetypal patterns, behavior tap- patterns that show up. You know, these are things like fixers, which is the caretakers or, you know, achiever, which is this perfectionist patterns. And I found that they were showing up a lot in my clients' work, either in their relationships or in their careers. And it was causing more problems than there was helping them. So that's the core foundation of what we talk about. Gotcha. And maybe we can approach it from a different lens. And hopefully this question makes sense. But what is small Asian energy? <laughs> that's a great question. Um it is there's a there's uh so okay so the idea here is that many of us i feel like are under recognized or we are underappreciated for our work because we've been taught to hide our light and this is something that when i was growing up i was taught which was that you know as a you know, Asian overachiever who grew up with a, you know, the the stereotypical tiger mom. I was always taught work as hard as you can, you know, beat everyone around you, but be humble about it. You know, don't talk about your accomplishments, you know, keep your head down, don't cause trouble. And so that was my frame of reference. And that was my frame of mind. So when I was growing up, I that's exactly what I did. I, I, I you know, I challenged myself to get into good schools. I challenged myself to get into top jobs. I had a, you know, really semi-successful career, my own business. But I realized I was constantly exhausted and burning out. And uh, somewhere around 2016, I went through a crash and I realized something isn't working here because no matter how hard I work, it seems like I wasn't reaching the level that I knew that I could or or that, that I believed that I could. And are you open to talking about the crash or the, yeah. the, rock, the rock bottom moment? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because now looking back, you know, I just, I feel like this was, I'm just got so used to it now talking about it. But at the time, it was a lot tougher. Uh, essentially, it was like one year where I went through a massive breakup uh, with a, with somebody I thought was a life partner. Um, I went through a, a business breakup on top of that. Um, I basically through the course of a single month became homeless. <laughs> and, I mean, like, it wasn't like I didn't have the option for a home, but I, it was just like everything in my life just kind of fell apart. And I remember there was a moment where I was giving a talk as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a speaker, I'm a motivational speaker, which is very ironic. I was giving a talk about high performance because that was already scheduled. And I'm standing on stage in front of all these people. And I'm talking about the secrets of success and high performance and the psychology behind it. And I was going through so much pain, not emotional pain, mind you, like physical pain as an ulcer (laughs) had broken out because I was so stressed and anxious that I had to literally grab a chair on stage and sit down 
because of what I was going through. It was, it was just, that was the physical manifestation of the stress I was going through. And I think that was the moment where I went, okay, something's not <laughs> working here. <laughs> yeah, the separation between the words you're saying and the life that you were living or the energy you're embodying were, were quite distinct, it sounds like. Yeah. And so what, what happened next? What, what was the first move that you made to drag yourself out of, out of that? Um, I was very lucky at the time. I had a brother-in-law who was in a men's group. And uh, he said, you know, bro, I, you need to go to a men's group. <laughs> so I went and I joined a men's group. I was not brought up to talk about my feelings. Uh, I was not brought up to be vulnerable in front of others. And I mostly just sat there and judged everyone and, you know, judged <laughs> what I was doing there. Uh, and I sat there for about three months, to be honest, before one day, somebody kind of was like, John, like, you've been quiet all this time, what's going on. And I just remember, I just started talking about what was really going on in my life. Um, and the shame that I was feeling that I was not succeeding, which was always how I defined my value in the world. And I was standing in front of uh, my brother in law who had, you know, got me to lock hands with him a uh, a men's group technique and i just and, and he had me yell basically so I, I i locked hands with him and i just started yelling and um halfway through yelling i bursted out crying and i just broke down in his arms and i think that was when i realized wow this is not just a performance issue this is something that goes much so yeah after that uh, lots of inner work, lots of therapy, <laughs> uh, going out into the woods, psychedelic journeys, <laughs> going to workshops. Yeah, all of that. All of it. Yeah, good for you, man. I, I'm reminded of this line that I love, which is anger is just sad's bodyguard. Uh, oh, it's so good. good. So good. But it sounds like that and beneath the screams, beneath the rage beneath the facade of anger and resentment and all the rest is this tender sort of wound mm -hmm. that you were exposed to for the first time. And once you're exposed, it's kind of like, okay, what do I deal with this now? Mm -hmm. Right? No more ignoring. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the small Asian energy versus big Asian energy, I saw on your site or somewhere, you talk about the difference between confidence and arrogance between speaking up and being demanding uh, yeah. maybe we could step into some of that because i think those are widely applicable and i know personally that i've used humility uh, for a long time and then realized oh i was hiding right i was scared to shine brighter i was scared to speak up oh it's no big deal i wasn't owning my gifts so anything on those topics that jump out at you yeah. Um, so talking about small Asian energy, <laughs> which is which is not a term I've ever used, but it's actually kind of funny when I think about it. Um, the, the sequel to the, it'd be your next book, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going in the opposite direction. Um, there are things that I call like mitigating language or micro apologies. These are things where like the word just, for example, you ever notice when you're talking to somebody and they say just when they introduce themselves, like, oh, what do you do? Like, oh, I'm just an accountant. You know, like, like, what are you working on? Oh, I just been working on this recently. And there, there, this, there's an energy of self-diminishment that takes place uh, that masquerades as humility. And the reason I say masquerades, because I see this with uh, a lot of people, especially who have been brought up to act into a certain familial role. I see this a lot. Uh, women and uh, visible minorities are very common in this, especially immigrants, those who have, you know, been expected to assimilate to a culture that they're in. Because the expectation is that to belong, you have to diminish your shine a little bit. Because if you shine too bright, other people will call you out and people will attack you for it. People will say, well, you know, I don't agree with you. And there's an expectation of confrontation that shows up. So these micro apologies that I see in so many people, I think comes from the fact that we were never really given permission to be loud, to speak up and to kind of raise our hand and say, well, this is not what I think is right. So it's about understanding the difference that humility is, is, is self-ownership. 
Like I'm full in who I am. I have full confidence. I have full embodiment. I take full ownership of who I am, but I don't need to throw it in other people's faces. Whereas self-diminishment is I genuinely don't feel like I am good enough. I am doing enough. I am successful enough. So let me pretend that it's humility when really I just don't have that ownership of myself. And then what is the process that you take your clients through in terms of identifying the difference between those two or um, like the micro apologies is a great example. The, the use of language of just, how do you get down into the heart of that? I, uh, I call, I have this thing I call the ABCs, which is assertiveness, boundaries, and core beliefs. <laughs> it's, uh, it, I, which I think is really comes down to it. Really. If you take a look at the process of stepping into our own power, assertiveness is our acknowledgement and our, our, um, permission to speak up. And, and share how we feel. And that's what it is. So assertiveness is the opposite of aggressive. It's not the same thing as aggressiveness. Aggressive is, is there's a dominance to it. There's a, I'm better than. Assertiveness is, no, this is just who I am. I'm here to assert my thoughts. I think the boundaries thing is the opposite direction, which is when you are giving yourself away too much, the question is, are you being clear on what you're comfortable with? Are you being clear with like, is somebody infringing upon your boundaries? Are you drawing? Are you communicating those things? Or is there this kind of give to get energy with what you're doing? And then mm -hmm. core beliefs is how do you really see yourself? And I think that's actually where the real work is at. Assertiveness and boundaries, those are communication. But core beliefs, that goes deep. That that's that's a, that's a step where we have to actually start taking a look at is who do you value yourself as? Once you take away all the other identifications, like, you know, your achievements, your education, all these kind of things. Like stripped bare of your titles, the numbers in your account, your possessions. Yeah. Who are you really? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there an example from your own life where you have worked through this system of ABCs to identify a blind spot or maybe a part of a relationship where you recognize your own uh, responsibility more than you <laughs> anticipated <laughs> or liked? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have, about, what, three hours for this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I think the boundaries piece was a big one. There is, um, especially with, I think for me, growing up in a family, especially, there's an expectation where, Boundaries was not well communicated in my family. And, you know, growing up, especially a collectivist, the term collectivist, meaning, you know, of belonging to the collective, like familial culture. Uh, a lot of Asian cultures are called collectivist cultures. And growing up in a collectivist culture, the idea is that you're never really who you are. Like you are part of the family. So everything you do is a reflection of your family's successes. This is well elaborate there's a book that was written by this uh professor named amy chua a while back called uh, i think it's called the battle hymn of the tiger mother and she talks about the asian mom stereotype and in it the core thing she talks about is that when you're an asian child you are an extension of your family so every accomplishment that you have is really your family's accomplishment and I think this is where boundaries really matter is because when you don't have that self-ownership and say, well, wait a second, am I doing something because I'm expecting that this is going to reflect well on my family? Or am I doing something because it's something I genuinely find purpose and joy and, and, and a sense of identity in? And I think that goes into the core values. So yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there were times where I had a had conversation with my mom uh, and I literally would say, uh, you know, Hey mom, if uh, if you keep telling me how and who I should date, I'm gonna have to get up and walk out of the room. And then when she, of course, continued to do so, I I literally got up and walked out of the room, and that made her really mad. <laughs> I came back and she's like, "Why'd you do that?" I said, "Well, I told you, I I I I'm not looking for feedback on this. This is my relationship, and thank you. I care. I appreciate your love for me." But I'm not looking for feedback on that. Love, I love this. As an 
as an outsider, I love this. Um, <laughs> but this idea that the child of a collective family is an extension of the family first, more than an individual, sounds to me like enmeshment or codependency in action, whereby you're prioritizing the needs of others over your own desires. And what it sounds like with that interaction with your your tiger mom was like, hang on, we're I'm redefining my role in this family system and it's gonna ruffle some feathers, but I'm prioritizing myself here. Is that, yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. There's an individuation process that is happening. Right. And just for those listening and for my my own ignorant self, when you say tiger mom, can you describe or define a little bit what that means? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the stereotype or even have you never seen memes of like Asian parents who are super strict on their kids becoming doctors and lawyers? I don't know if you've seen memes of like this guy who does like this emotional damage. He's like emotional damage. Like there's like that joke that goes around or, you know, stuff like that or like the uh, disappointed Asian dad memes about the fact that his son isn't in uh, in medical school. It's it's a reference to that. So in Asian cultures, we prioritize achievement, especially academic and work achievement, very highly. This is this is a, a well-studied value. This is not something that is, you know, a stereotype. It's actually something that is listed. If you take a look at Asian, core Asian values, education tends to be one of them. And uh, collectivism being the other one, which is family harmony. And that also includes, of course, this question of, is this enmeshment gets brought up, which is like, is this too far or is this just part of culture? And it gets brought up. So the tiger mom is a stereotype of an Asian mom or Asian dad who has very high expectations for their kids and will say things like, oh, no, you can't go play with your friends. No, you can't do sleepovers. You know, you have to get top marks in school. Gotcha. So it's like, that's great that you were valedictorian of your high school, but why weren't you valedictorian twice or, you know, <laughs> and, and prom king or queen or whatever? Is it? Yeah. A lot a of comparison. A lot of comparison. Is it a relentless striving for more or is there like a summit that you could land on top of? And finally the tiger mom would be like, okay, that's cool. You're, I'm proud of you now. Uh, so yeah, that <laughs> definitely more so the first one. So this is what I call the achiever treadmill, uh, which is it's, it's the idea that there's always something more you can accomplish. There's always something more you can accomplish. And that's a tough part. I think I have nothing. I think that accomplishment is great. Have goals, set dreams, go and create things, go and, you know, crush things. But where it becomes a challenge is where we become such relentless overachievers that you know, anything we get feels not good enough because as soon as we get a trophy, your mind is immediately on what is the next thing? What is the next big leap? What is the next big accomplishment? And uh, I, I, you know, in my book, I talk about this from the perspective of, you know, the missing percentage on the test. What I mean by that is that like when a student brings back home, like I got 95%, you know, that's amazing, right? Like great job. And the first question that they oftentimes hear back is that's great. What happened to the last 5%? Right. And that's that's the missing idea. It's like whatever you do, there's always something more that you're not doing enough of. And that pattern that we have when we were kids continues throughout our adulthood. And it becomes a thing where, oh, we got a promotion. And instead of celebrating it and, you know, being proud of it and, and actually advocating for ourselves and saying, hey, I'm really good at this thing. Check out this award that I got. It becomes, oh, actually, no, I need to do more. And we immediately disqualify. Like that's where we have to start taking a look at that core belief of saying, "What well, does this true? Do I really need to immediately disqualify this for me to be good enough?" So there's this kind of um, flavor of perfectionism I feel that runs through a lot of what you're saying there, which is that's the ultimate goal. Anything aside from 100% on a test is not good enough. But then I'm thinking about life and people people are not perfect relationships are not perfect uh partners and communication is not perfect so it seems like this is potentially setting up a clash between this 
familial culture, or I don't know how widespread this culture is, with life in general as you get out into the world? And is that what's manifesting in a lot of your clients and people you're seeing? Or what are your thoughts on perfectionism as it relates to everything you've stated? Perhaps that's an easier way to say it. So the answer is, yeah, definitely. Um, perfectionism is a major pressure point, I feel like. And the expectation can be so high amongst achievers is that there is this sense that whatever they do, because they never feel like they're good enough, they also don't know how to promote or advocate for themselves. So there's there, there are these issues that we take a look at as social issues. So for example, there's this concept called the bamboo ceiling. And the bamboo ceiling basically looks at the fact that a lot of Asian Americans are well represented in the middle levels of, you know, big corporations, Fortune 500s, which is everything up until middle management. So they're engineers, they're analysts, they're programmers, but underrepresented at the executive level. And I was just looking at these studies and it's questioning, where is this coming from? And it has down, comes down to the fact that if we take a look at our communication styles and our leadership, a big part of our sense of identity comes back down to humility. And that's the problem is that what happens when perfectionism meets humility? Where you genuinely feel like I am not good enough to claim ownership of this role. And at the same time, I feel like I need to feel guilty raising my hand and saying, no, I am. So this is where this actually impacts our relationships, this impacts our work, this impacts our career trajectory, all of it. Right. And so it's almost as if the strength is turned up too high and becomes a weakness is one way I've heard it described where mm -hmm. you might be humble, you might genuinely be humble, but yeah. because you have this perfectionist tendency, you're now hiding, not owning your worth, spiraling yeah. into thoughts of limiting beliefs. Yeah. This am I enough question mm. that, that becomes the constant feeling is that like, you know, there was a recent show that came out uh, on Netflix. It's called beef. And, you know, I love the show. So it's such a good show in terms of like the, the, the writing and, and the storytelling, and it features these two characters and they're from different backgrounds. One is, you know, much more, I'll say like, uh, I would even say upper class, she's an entrepreneur. And the other one is more like, he's also an entrepreneur, but he runs a um, like a handyman business. But both of them constantly is feeling like there's always something more that they have to do. There's always a sense that they're not doing enough. They're not being enough. They're not good enough. And I think that's something that if we take a look at how we express ourselves in the world, being good enough, that sense of like, yeah, it's, it's self-esteem affects our confidence affects our appearance affects our relationship with others so how do you face that personally as somebody that knows all this and is like putting your hand up to write the book at, you know like i will teach it i will talk about it i will own it <laughs> and imagine there's a lot of that coming up for you individually I mean, oh man, uh, I, yeah, the one thing I make it clear is I'm not the expert on Asians. <laughs> no one, I don't think anyone is. Um, I have lots of studies uh, that I quote. I have lots of stories from my own life. And ultimately I can speak to my experiences. So, you know, I definitely am not saying this is something, you know, there's, uh, there's like 7 billion Asian people. It's a culture that is so vast that is, you know, there's, there's no way to say anything. It doesn't categorize, but I think that I see it enough with my clients and myself that that's what the angle I talk about. Yeah. And yeah, hell yeah. I experience imposter syndrome every day writing this. Are you kidding me? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Who am I to write this? Uh, that was the first question. Literally, my first chapter when I started writing was, am I Asian enough uh, to write this? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Like, well, I was listening. I'm just a standard white dude. Uh, <laughs> one of the questions I was actually thinking of asking you, John, and then I backtracked in my brain, but now we're here and I'll just say yeah. it was like... Yeah what is it like to be Asian? Like, what is it like to be an Asian man in the world? So, I don't know, take this and run with it wherever you'd like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So 
I can't speak to what is it like to be Asian because holy crap, that's <laughs> that's a big topic. I can right. tell you my experiences uh, and how I grew up. Um, so I like to say that there is an there's this very interesting invisible difference in in how I experience things because I don't actually notice my own race very often until it was pointed out to me. Like there was almost this thing where when I was talking to my own podcast guests, uh, I had a guest who was on there and, and one day she talked about this. She's like, one day I woke up and I realized I was Asian. And it sounds really kind of funny, but that's how I think a lot of people have felt, which is I grew up as North American as you can get. You know, I listened to Boys to Men. Um, and that's the, that's the standard, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As, as far as, as how, how Western it goes. Uh, I listened to NSYNC. Uh, I had those, uh, you know, I, I didn't really resonate that much with Asia, Asia and Asian American culture is very different from Asian, Asian culture in the same way that African American culture is very different from African, Africa culture. So I felt like I grew up having never really paid attention to it. And it wasn't until I started looking at certain differences in how I looked at stories when I was in those men's groups, when I was in these kind of like inner work groups, where I started realizing, hey, a lot of stuff I talked about was getting a lot of strange looks around, you know, expectation, like talking about familial relationships. And this expectation and this pressure, I was always feeling is like, oh, yeah, my parents are getting older. And my expectation is, as the oldest son, you're supposed to take over the family, you're supposed to, you know, take care of your parents forever. And, you know, like, and that's something I really treasure. And I, 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 I own about my culture, but these are experiences that I think a lot of people don't know unless they grew up with it and what that feels like and what that pressure looks like. Um, I was reading the study, uh, it was done by UBC and which has a large population of Asian Canadian students. And they found that 40% of white students referred themselves as being shy when they were doing self-categorizations and over 70% of Asian students refer to themselves being shy, which I thought was very strange because I'm like, I never thought about Asians being shy, but there is that sense that we are somehow more shy. So these are things that when you actually start taking a look at the numbers, you go, oh, okay, so there is a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's nearly double, right? Yeah. Twice. The average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then how, so going back to this question from a moment ago, the idea of being Asian enough that you were questioning your credentials or your qualifications, <laughs> is that a thing or is that just a way for your ego to avoid the discomfort of writing a book, for example? Um, I think the imposter syndrome here is, is who am I speaking from? And who am I speaking to? And I think that was what my own struggle was. And, you know, when I was doing the, uh, you know, when we're doing that proposal process, when you write a book, you know, you, you, you create a proposal and then you take it to publishers. One of the biggest things we kept hearing back, we met with a number of major publishers and, you know, they were all very excited by it. They were like, yeah, this is, this is super interesting. And the one thing we kept hearing was we were doing research to find comparable books on Asian American personal development. And there is none. There's none. There is, and they were shocked. To give you context, a lot of people don't know this, especially if you live in a state where there, there may not be a lot of Asian people around. In North America, there's over 30 million Asian people. Over 30 million. So I think it's like 24 million in the US plus about 7 million in Canada. If we put all the Asian people into a, a, a state, we'd be the second largest state. <laughs> you know, that's three quarters of Canada. A lot of us. There are smaller countries than 30 million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that like, you know, there's no books talking about this was a surprise, I think, to a lot of people, myself included. And I just went, well, you know, this is my experience. Let me talk about it. Mm. I think that's beautiful, man. And that's how I got started writing, essentially, was I was reading articles online and I wasn't reading the articles that I wanted to read mm -hmm. in the, talking about subjects in the way that I think about them. And I just, at one point decided, well, I need to write the articles that I want to read because I can't be the only one out, 
out there that's thinking these yeah. things. Yeah. That's that was exactly it. I, I literally just sat down. I was talking to my uh my coach, <laughs> who was my therapist. And she's just like, You're, you know, you're writing a book. What would you want to read? And that was exactly it. It was just like I I wish I had been given this book that I'm writing now. Yeah. What a gift. Well, when I was when I was going through that day in 2016, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe that's your target audience is you from 2016, right? When you're writing, maybe that helps you to clarify the message or whatnot. Maybe. Um, I uh, I think that the one of the core essence messages here is really like breaking out of the roles that we were taught, that I was taught, that I had to play out in the role. One of my favorite stories um, that I that I write about, and uh, it was a kind of a fable. It was talking about how in Thailand, there was this Buddha statue that had been uncovered that was like hundreds of years old. And it was, this, was, this is a real story, by the way. And it was like covered in clay. And they were like, okay, we need to move the statue into a nicer, you know, temple because the temple that it was housed in was breaking down. And when they tried to lift it, they realized that it was much heavier than other statues. And in fact, the whole lifting crane snapped, the rope snapped when they were trying to lift it up. And it cracked open. And what they found inside was that the statue was actually made of pure gold. And we're talking like like 24K pure gold, massive statue, thousands of pounds. Um, and it was a shock because they were like, what? Like, this is something that's worth, I think it was something like a, more than like, like almost a quarter of a billion dollars in today's value. And it's just been sitting in this abandoned temple. And they figured out what the story was that, you know, back in the time where they were still warring between Thailand and neighboring countries, there was this attack that was coming. And the monks decided to take this beautiful statue and cover it up in clay to hide it out of safety. And then they just forgot about it because the monks were unfortunately killed and nobody was left to continue it. It did protect it, but then it was forgotten. And I love this analogy because I feel like that's who we are. So many people I meet, not just Asian people, of course, but like everybody I meet, I feel like at some point we've been conditioned to hide our light. We've been hide, conditioned to hide that, that essence of what we are because of safety, because of belonging, because of whatever it is we felt like we needed to be. And really the book is how do we crack open that clay so we can start seeing who we really are inside. What a beautiful analogy, you know? <laughs> and I think for me, where I went with that was that's a really helpful lens through which to view the world and to view people and to evoke compassion and understanding and kindness of that we're all these gold-centered individuals that through life and circumstances have just had mud and dust and debris thrown on top of us to mm -hmm. no fault of our own. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the coaches and the therapists are the ones with the little hammer or the chisel knocking that away or a bucket of water and a sponge trying to clean that off and being like, see, see this yeah. part? <laughs> you shiny bastard, you're actually made of gold. And yeah, it sounds like also this idea that you're talking about is that the familial systems that we encounter are the ones that are putting the clay on top of us. So don't stand out, don't shine, fit yeah. in, don't yeah. attract attention yeah. to the detriment of all. Yeah. It could be culture. I would say cultural values, certainly that humility, that expectation to play small and, 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 you know, work hard, but keep your head down. I definitely think assimilation for a lot of us who had parents, for example, my parents who grew up as immigrants, being safe was belonging. Being safe was not raising a ruckus. Being safe was playing along. And when that's what's taught to you that, you know, put your head down, you know, there's there's these, there are these sayings in Asian cultures, like the tallest blade of grass is the one that gets cut, right? The nail that sticks out is the one that gets hammered. When we've been conditioned with that lesson for so long, after a while, we start to believe it and go, well, maybe then it's safer to not speak up, even though that might not be the truth anymore. Yeah. On that same topic, 
in my own family system, I'm reminded of my grandma who grew up in Argentina, speaks fluent or spoke fluent Spanish, uh, gets a call one day decades ago from my dad's high school Spanish teacher. And my dad is failing Spanish. And so the teacher calls my grandma to have an intervention and they start speaking in Spanish. And he's like, yo, why is your kid failing Spanish? You're from Argentina. He speaks no Spanish. He's awful. Uh, I'm, I'm projecting my own. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't there for the story, right? But the facts remain. And basically, uh, it was back then where you didn't want to be heard speaking Spanish. You didn't want to stand out. You didn't want to be the Spanish nail sticking out to get hammered upon. And so it's this like indoctrination into the socially accepted ideals and norms at the expense of who you truly are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's tragic. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like you were saying this before, and I completely agree, is that if you walk around, I genuinely feel like there's something that is within every single person that is genuinely exceptional. And that is my privilege as a coach is I have people who walk in and they're willing to show me what their gifts are, even if they don't recognize it as gifts, even if they think this is nothing that is significant or extraordinary. And so often I'm sat there mouth agape at like a person, I've had people come in and I'm like, what, you know, what are some of the gifts that you're good at? And we're, you know, we're doing career alignment stuff. And there were so many people are like, I'm not good at anything. Or like, I'm okay at all these things. And they, they really self-diminish until you kind of dive deep and you go, wait a second, like you performed piano, you know, at, <laughs> you know, um, you know, at, at Juilliard and, and you know, you, you have, won six different awards in your industry. Like you've broken these records, you've done all these things. What on earth are you talking about? And every single one of them is just like, nah, it's not, you know, somebody else did more. So, you know, it's not a big of a deal. You know, once you walk through this, you'll realize that, you know, hitting Forbes 30 under 30 is really easy. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, the New York Times bestseller list, it's rigged. Anybody can yeah. do it. <laughs> And so then what is your practice as a coach to help people practice pride, I guess, is the, the crux of it, right? Or acknowledging how great they're doing. I, I like to say I practice reality because I, <laughs> like the, the judgment of, uh, you know, I should be proud. I shouldn't be proud. I'm like, that's, I throw that away. I'm like, can we just look at it objectively? And I usually get them to step out of it and say, well, like what? you know, what have you actually done so far? And what would your, if you were your best friend, look at this as? If we were, if we were looking at the industry norms, if we we're looking at it from a third person perspective, what would you see this as? Or I would ask, you know, how would you feel if I took that away? You know, this recent thing, that promotion that you think is absolutely garbage that you, you, you frankly think that nobody should ever talk about and you want to hide. How would you feel if we took that away? And then suddenly they gain a, a different appreciation for it. And they go, oh, actually, no, that's that was pretty amazing what I did. And I'm like, yeah, great. Okay. And recognize that you can acknowledge what you've already created as part of this greater journey. And we tend to look so much at how far we still have yet to go that we don't acknowledge that seeing how far we've come is an important part of that equation. Hmm. Yeah, and when that's embedded as a core like, way of living, you'll never get anywhere because you're always seeking the next thing. You'll never appreciate things. The, the reason for striving or the motivation to do these great things is to have them. But if you never actually savor the having or the receiving, yeah. it's like, what, do you, what are you doing this for? You're, you're, you're burnt out. You'll, burn, you'll, you'll be standing on stage talking to a bunch of people clutching your stomach in fear of passing out because you have ulcers. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetically, yeah. <laughs> and so maybe we could talk on a bit of, about burnout. I know you highlighted that at the beginning of the chat as, as something that you are familiar with, something that you coach people on. Oh, boy. What is burnout? Yeah. What do we do about it? Um. Burnout was originally created by a psychologist who actually self-diagnosed him. <laughs> he was 
And uh, and he called it uh, helper's burnout because he noticed that it was particularly common with doctors and nurses and people whose jobs is to take care of other people. And in, you know, if you're in a culture in which taking care of your family was part of your familial roles, and we're talking about that as like, if a lot of times I see this with, you know, firstborns who are taught, hey, you got to take care of your younger siblings, like they're your responsibility. And as well, people who, for me, for example, like growing up in a different culture, I was the family cultural interpreter, right? You know, I helped my family take care of small things. My sister helped my family with so many different things. So the helper's burnout that we go through, what now collectively we call as burnout, is essentially when we overwork to a certain point that we we lose that sense of self because that self-sacrifice is so hot. And for me, I think that burnout is, if we actually take a look at it, it's almost like depression, right? It's almost like a depression. We just like run out of energy. We run out of motivation and we kind of crash and not feel any sense of identity and what we do anymore. That's something I experience very deeply. Yeah. During that time, especially. Yeah. And so when you are aware of it or start to notice that it's happening, are there steps that you take or recommend for people to initiate? Absolutely. Um, I think that it's one of those things where putting on your mask before putting it on somebody else um, is is such a core thing of saying, hey, I think asking for help is something we haven't really normalized in a lot of communities yet, in a lot of cultures yet, where it's like asking for help is actually a form of giving because you're allowing other people to be part of your world. So I call this the bamboo mindset, you know, which is, you know, if you take a look at bamboos, bamboos are, you know, tough and shiny on the outside, but they're kind of hollow and empty on the inside. And that's, that was, that was how I felt was like, everyone was always asking me like, how are you doing, John? I'm like, I'm great. Yeah, everything's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And like, I was just tough because I was taught to be tough on the outside, but inside I was completely running out of gas. And that was the burnout that I experienced. So the process for how do we deal with that is by first acknowledging that, hey, acknowledging wherever you're at is fine. I'm having like, on most days I'm doing great. Today I'm having an okay day. Today I'm having maybe even a kind of crappy day. And sometimes just the acknowledgement of it without making it wrong or bad or something that needs to be rescued or fixed is enough of just taking a moment and being like, I'm having a crappy day and it's okay. It's just is a crappy day. And then going, okay, who can I reach out to and ask for support? And I think that's something that we need to normalize as a as an entire culture, not just an Asian culture, everywhere of saying, no, we're just we can have crappy days and not be a crappy person. Yeah, I, I love this idea that the way to have a better world is to have more crappier days or to just like acknowledge (laughs) (laughs) rather than saying oh it's great everything's fine i'm good i'm good i'm fine i'm fine it's like no we'd be better off having more crappy days a hundred percent because and and that's the funny thing is our fear of being seen in our crappiness and our, our messiness i shouldn't say crappiness messiness is the fact that if other people see us being messy then they'll think less of us but scientifically, instead of statistically speaking, especially in behavioral psychology, I'm sure you guys, you're familiar with this, is that's actually the opposite. We feel closer to somebody, especially leaders, when they're willing to show their vulnerabilities, when, when they're willing to let us in that they're not perfect. That's when we feel a deeper sense of kinship and alignment with somebody else. So when we show our perfections, we're actually keeping people at our arm's length. And when we show people that we are messy, but more importantly, that we accept our own messiness, it's such a powerful shift where we actually respect others more as a result of it. And again, it's it's counterproductive. It's Sorry, it's not counterproductive. It's counterintuitive, but it's something that we know to be true. Yeah, it's a paradox. Such it's a paradox. Those classical. Yeah moves you're like oh you want to be respected you should uh tell people that you're scared or feeling dark or yeah vulnerability yeah i was uh i was interviewing um 
this is he's an Asian guy. He is the head of leader development, global leader development at Adobe, you know, huge company, right? And he literally trains their C C levels and he trains their managers. And I asked him, what is the secret to leadership and like great leadership? And the one word he gave was vulnerability. We that's just where we're at. We no longer feel um judgment around somebody else when they're sharing their vulnerability, especially when they're sharing their scars that we recognize as being, yeah, this is what gives me a sense of trust in this person. I agree. And I think that's a huge point when you said scars, um, the sharing from the scar versus sharing from the wound, I think is a, an important distinction. And Mm -hmm. one way that I look at that through writing is to sort of write from the wound, but edit from the scar, if that makes sense. So like, yeah, get it out, get it out, get the mushy, dirty details out. And then once it's healed, go back and be like, oh, that actually wasn't vulnerability. That was me seeking attention or that was me needing a hug rather than actual healed, you know, strong foundational writing. Uh, Yeah. But sometimes in certain circumstances, you're just in the wound and you got to lead and you got to have a conversation and you can clarify from the get-go, like, this is going to be messy and I'm all over the place, especially in yeah. a relationship. Yeah. Like, are you here to yeah. hold this? Are you okay with this? Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and, and one of the easiest things I always say is just like, it's easier sometimes just get it out of the way. You know, when I'm not saying, yeah, go into your business meeting and treat it like a therapy session. <laughs> clean xboxes to all your c-suite executives oh, yeah exactly yeah like obviously we we recognize appropriate contexts and that doesn't change you know don't go to your six-year-old child and talk about daddy's going through a really tough time right now um you know appropriate contexts do matter but yeah go you know bring out a friend go for a walk go to your communities and say hey guys this is what i'm going through right now I'm not looking for someone to fix me. I'm just, I just want someone to, to listen to what I'm going through. Yeah. And that's it. I, I love that. I just had this random flash to you going on these, these book pitches to these, you know, famous publishers and, and then being like <laughs> sitting down and then being like, Thank so, random help. Yeah, how you, uh, John, it's nice to meet you. And you saying like, when I was 15, my girlfriend cheated on me. It's like, yeah. no, that's, that's yeah. not the time to have that chat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's save that for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, is there anything that we've not touched on where you're sitting there thinking, yo, Jeremy, you knucklehead, how could you not ask me about this? Or I've really wanted to say this thing. Um, That's a great question. Let me think about that. You know, we talked about burnout. We talked a little bit about the achiever treadmill. Um, we addressed a little bit about the caretaker, uh, patterns. There's, there's these seven patterns that I talk about and, you know, but I don't think we need to go into that on all the details. We talked about empathy and vulnerability. Yeah. We've had the full buffet. Yeah, dude. Yeah. We like, you're, you're great, man. We just, we went through the whole thing. That's it. Uh, yeah. Smorgasbord. And I think though, you know, this is a really good sort of sample of what you're about and who you are. And you've got the podcast. People can go and listen to the podcast. You're writing the book. They can devour more of that content if they're into it. But yeah, it seems like we've we've hit all the, the bases. I've scratched off all of my notes of oh, like beauty. I want to about yeah. That. Is there an, is there anything else that you want to go into it? Is you know, I mean we could talk about comparisonitis, but I feel like, you know, same, same, same. Yeah, this is a random one, John. And uh, I don't know if this is even practical to say, but I was walking uh, a couple weeks or a couple months ago. I don't recall when, but I'm dating a, a woman. I don't know if you've met Kendra. She's half Japanese. And we've been having conversations uh, about starting a family and having a kid. And mm-hmm. I was going for this walk and had this moment where my brain said to myself, am I going to have an Asian baby and for for whatever reason that was such a peculiar insight of like ah that's different and it struck me that 
that might be different than if I was dating some of my ex-girlfriends who didn't look like Kendra. Um, and so when you were talking about tiger mom and tiger dad, I was thinking like, what's the, what's the other side of that? Like, is there a llama mom or is there like a <laughs> mother goose? That's like more. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so technically there is three, you know, so there is a, a psychologist that talked about there's three main styles of parenting. There's authoritarian parenting, authoritative parenting and permissive parenting. So uh, when we talk about tiger moms, what we're really talking about is authoritarian parenting, which is what I say go. And um, it's it's almost like it's almost dictatorial. Like, like this is the rules. And because I said so, therefore, this is what it is. And then permissive is on the opposite. So that would be the mother goose one, which is, you know, whatever you want to do is fine. And whatever you don't want to do, you don't have to do. Um, this is like a step above Parenting, which is like, oh, I forgot that I had a kid. Uh, <laughs> but then there is this beautiful middle one, which is called authoritative parenting. There's another parenting expert here that talks about this dolphin parenting, which I really like as a metaphor, which is that there's a lot of love. So the idea is that, no, no, we, we do have an expectation and standard that I want you to meet, but they just don't make love conditional on it which is what we see a lot in authoritative parents, which is like, if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to withdraw love. I'm going to chastise you. Uh, I'm going to take away emotional rewards. And that's where it becomes a problem. Whereas authoritative parenting is like, no, no, like I have high expectations of you. I also love you even if you fail. But let's try again. And let's see if we can do something else to make that goal what it is. And being very clear that there's a difference between mommy and daddy's desires for what you want to be and what you want to be might look different, but whatever it is, I want to support you in that role and set that expectation for you and give you lots of love. So the dolphin is the, is the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the dolphin parent. Yeah. There's a tiger. I, I got to look up that other book, um, but it was called the dolphin way. And you can go and take a look at that. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah. I I wonder what the uh, the author's practice was for brainstorming that figure. Were they like sitting around with their agent and some close friends and being like, <laughs> "What about a turkey? You know, what about a what about a meerkat? How about a sea? And it's like dolphin. Like, oh, it's dolphin. It's it's it, dolphin. So so this is I, I just looked it up. Uh, it's the tiger, dolphin, and jellyfish parent. <laughs> yeah. So she, She's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and a parenting expert, and she talks about the three methodologies. And yeah, dolphin is authoritative, uh, and and jellyfish is too much autonomy. It's non-purposeful. It's everything is driven by the child's demands, and there's no set of boundaries or clarity and rules. Yeah, there's no structure. It just goes with the wind, or the not the wind, but the okay. Yeah. Because so dolphins, dolphins. I guess, like they swim past by their parents, like they're firm, but oh, okay. So this is what it is. Like the body, I'm reading this article on psychology today. Like the body of a dolphin, the parents are firm yet flexible. That's why it's called dolphin parents. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm but, glad. We, yeah. You're, you're going to have a part Asian child. Yeah. 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 And and so even just seeing uh, big Asian energy all around you, I was like, you know, I mean, need to consider that. Like, yeah, that, that's important. I feel, and uh, you're opening my eyes to to some of the things that may may occur with that. I like to say that it's a uh, you know because my partner is also Caucasian, um, and we've talked about this. Like, if we have a kid, they will look probably just genetics wise a bit more Asian. Then they will look white because you know as a guy I'm I have certain more dominant genes or something like that about Asian. I, I don't I'm, I'm, don't quote me on the science of any of this. <laughs> There's no science. I have no sign of education on epigenetics. Uh, but we we talked about this and that like yeah like there are certain lessons I would love to share with parents who are raising an Asian appearing child, even if they're brought up in Western cultures, is that they're they may be treated as an, an Asian person. 
that they may not be aware of. You know, growing up, there are questions that I, I get that I think a lot of Asian people get. You know, questions like, yeah, but like, where are you really from? Or like, where, you know, um, I was talking to someone and, and she got a question the other day, which was, yeah, but what's your real name? Her name was Christina, which is a westernized name. And, and like, she was talking to a, I think, Fortune 500 exec or something like that. And she's like, yeah, but what's like your real name? And it, it, stuff like that will come up. And this is what we call the perpetual foreigner syndrome, which is it's going to be weird that you feel like a foreigner and you don't know how to explain it because of the way you feel and the way you appear. Yeah. What an odd situation to be in. Like, yeah. my name? It's, yeah. it's, I don't know. Would you qualify that as a racist question? Is there like some racism, silver line, not silver lining, but like yeah. a, you know, an undertone? It's kind of like all the microaggressions. Micro- <laughs> but yeah. you know, we're, we're used to it. <laughs> but I think yeah. we're getting better at being like, well, that doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> yeah, getting used to it though is like a, a sadness, at least in me. It's like, no, we need to not be used to these kind of microaggressions, right? Is that a fair? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I think it's a we bullshit. Should. I think that this is something that we're getting better at now. There's definitely been more push around understanding and awareness. And even in the past five years, I will say it has changed dramatically especially after what happened during, you know, during the pandemic, there was this whole anti-Asian hate wave, which is very unfortunate. And I remember, and I was walking around downtown Vancouver. Vancouver is a very Asian dominant city. And, you know, I had somebody come up to me, this guy, and I'm guessing he was not the healthiest uh, when it comes to mental health, but he came up to me, he spat on me and he said, go back to your own effing country, um, as well as a number of other things that I'm not going to get into. And it was so jarring to me in that moment because I just didn't even realize like that was like, I just forgot. I forgot I'm Asian. Like I said, like it's something that I don't think about. Like it's just not something you think about on a day to day. And it wasn't until stories like that started showing up that I was like, oh yeah, like this is still a thing. And when I started talking to more and more people, you know, on my own show, on my podcast and interviewing people for the book, I started to realize how common these things still can be. So we have come a long way and there's still some ways that we can go. Yeah, that's a refreshing way to, to end it. <laughs> Optimistic. <laughs> Silver lining. Whereas I'm like, that's bullshit, John. Fuck that guy. <laughs> I have friends who are definitely much more angry about it. Um, and I, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, I feel like I should be, but... I, I I take a look at it and I'm like, we're all human. And I think I always say this because I, I have white friends and they get a little awkward whenever I bring, talk about stuff like this. And they're like, I don't want to accidentally be racist. And I'm like, I don't think any of you guys are, obviously. But the jokes that used to be okay, sometimes may not be okay anymore. And I can hold compassion that I'm like, that used to be okay. What is the change? And also that, yeah, the society is changing. And the normalization is a positive thing for all of us because that diversity brings out a lot more um, interesting ideas and creativity. And and, and I think that diversity makes us better. I I agree with you. And I, I feel like in some ways, the grand societal shift is like a pendulum and it almost has swung too far in the other direction, whereby now me as a person that has a podcast and puts content out in the world, I feel scared for being canceled for my curiosity and genuine desire to know and learn and improve. And it's like, if I ask the wrong question in the wrong way, there's this horde of people waiting. Yeah. (laughs) And my ignorance, even though I'm attempting to end that ignorance in the process of (laughs) <laughs> misspeaking, yeah. misstepping. And it's this very surreal kind of environment. It's you. I mean, I feel I feel the same worry about getting canceled. <laughs> right? I, like we this is just a thing, is and this is why I'm always like, I uh, questions should be always guilt-free. Genuine curiosity should never be made wrong. I think intention does matter. And I tell us, I'm like, I don't think any of my friends are 
racist in that they think of me uh, as lesser out of my skin. I am like, I think we need to bring back that it's okay to ask and want to know. Because now we've created this weird thing where we tiptoe around topics and then we take away the ability to talk about it. And the talking about it is really where we're actually going to grow. So no, dude, I tell this to my friends all the time. I'm like, just ask. Someone's going to be like the words big Asian energy. I've gotten people offended over that just because of using the word big Asian energy. I have people on my, you know, I've got TikTok following and, you know, people get mad because they're like, Asians shouldn't have big energy. I'm like, why, why, why? (laughs) I get people mad when I point out that like, there are statistical, like, it, you know, people are going to get mad on the internet. We, I'm just, I'm like, eh, fine. I'm going to try to speak my truth. My intention is hopefully mostly good. And that's that's where I'm at, man. <laughs> Truer words have never been spoken. People are going <laughs> to get mad on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and and I can't police everyone's feelings, right? Like, I, I just can't. It all ties together because, you know, the small Asian energy or the humility or the, you know, hiding yourself, quieting your voice in some way prevents this discomfort of making people mad, of saying the wrong thing. And so it does serve us to some degree, but it serves us at the expense of living fully, expressing our whole heart and our truth and making a difference in the world. Yeah. It's the trade-off. Yeah. 100%. All right, brother. So I will share your book and your podcast in the show notes, but I know you just mentioned a TikTok and an Instagram. Yeah, Yeah, I can send that off to you. What's the best way? Yeah. Send that to me on email and I'll put it in the show notes and those listening can find you, get in your world, watch your videos. All right, brother. Well, thanks for that. That was fun. Yeah. Let me know if anything I do to support. That was John Wang. As mentioned, you can find links to his various social media platforms in the show notes below, including his TikTok and his Instagram account. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. I appreciate the five-star reviews. I appreciate you sharing this conversation with anybody that you think would benefit from it, of which I know there are many people. So feel free to share it, spread the word, grow the ripples of this podcast, which is me, Jeremy, just trying to inspire some more compassion in the world, spread a bit of kindness, make it cool. You can find me everywhere online at Long Distance Love Bombs. I have an email newsletter. I'm on Instagram. If you want to just say hello, share a recipe, I am down. Reach out. If you've got suggestions, if you've got guests that you want me to interview, please do let me know. I appreciate you. I thank you for your support. And I will talk to you soon.